Podcast. The Gospel According to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. All right. As we get settled in, it is that time to pick up where we left off in Matthew's gospel. We're starting a new chapter, chapter 6 and verse 1. Exciting things await us. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, some really difficult words about the sin of hypocrisy. God, we all have fallen into this trap, and we pray Father, that you would expose our hearts so that we can, with the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, do make some changes to catch the bad behavior as it's happening and then put your word into practice to be blessed. So open us up. Help us not to be defensive, um, but to trust the hand of the great physician wielding the scalpel this morning because you do so in love. We can trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a common accusation out there. We do hear it a lot by unbelievers who throw it our way that Christians are hypocrites. It's often used as a lame excuse for them not to go to church. They'll say, churches are filled with hypocrites, not for me. Now, when somebody uses that line on me that they can't go to church because the church is filled with hypocrites, I just smile and say, good news, come to our church. We have room for one more. And that is if you define hypocrisy as a sincere person with good intentions, who has high morals, who falls short occasionally of their well-loved intended virtues. Everybody knows what that feels like. And that is not a classic uh, definition of what a hypocrite is. That's called somebody who's falling short of their ideals, not intentionally. There's a huge difference between uh, striving for moral excellence but failing to do so all the time and between the biblical definition of hypocrisy, which will now be graphically displayed in all of its ugliness. Here in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to turn his full undivided attention to the truest and deadliest form of hypocrisy. It's time to call out the religious leaders, the fake Pharisees, the pretenders. That's what they were. They preached one thing, And they did completely another. And all they cared about was impressing people to make them impressed with how good and godly and wonderful they were. Look at me, how devoted and dedicated. Aren't I wonderful? And it's so ugly. It was like a big, crazy show, like a circus there, really. And you can kind of uh, see a similar thing if you watch late night television and tune into some of the religious broadcasting stations. You will see a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of play acting, uh, a lot of craziness indeed. So our Lord Jesus has just uh, listed some very high morals for his people Um, moral perfection is the reach, and the last thing he wants them to walk away with is to imitate the phonies as one way to get there to uh, do these moral good deeds. Um, 
or let the example of their leaders uh, seep into their own hearts and lives. So Jesus knows that it's easier to pretend than be the real deal. So he's got to warn us. And he also knows it's easy for us to want the praise and adoration of others. So he has to warn us and warn us he does here in this passage. And so it's time to expose uh, their hypocrisy, as I've been saying, to throw some shade on these phony balonies. And in doing so, he's going to choose three, um, let's call them Christian disciplines because they turn out to be from Judaism, but they are Christian disciplines from everyday life. And he's going to use those three examples. Most of you know where this is going. Giving, praying, and fasting. And they make a nice uh, three-point outline for us, giving, praying, and fasting. And here's what Jesus is doing as we get started now. He's exposing the frauds by revealing their sick motives. And secondly, he's correcting the bad behavior. He's going to say, here's the wrong way to do something. Here's the right way to do it. And so that's pretty nice. And then he warns his followers, uh, Watch out for your motives because they'll make or break your good deed. If you're trying to serve God, but you have wrong motives, you will forfeit reward. The thing will still be a good thing. It's just that you will not be rewarded for it at all. And so that's a big warning. In fact, the new chapter begins at chapter 6 and verse 1 with Words of warning, let's dive into the first paragraph. Be careful, take heed, not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven, verse 2. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And there you have it, our first point for consideration, giving. So as we dive in here, verse 1 is the thesis statement. You can see that, you know. It's the umbrella statement uh, that the following 18 verses will really uh, come under. And we'll include three uh, examples of what the thesis statement is saying. It. So here's the thesis statement. A warning to guard ourselves against the perverted, sick tendency to do good things in order to receive human adoration and and he says right off the bat if you do that you will forfeit divine reward among other unpleasantries that await a person like that and sadly as i said in my prayer there's a little pharisee uh, in everybody's heart and so we have to be careful uh, to look at that as our sinful nature and as the Bible says, to be aware of that and use the Holy Spirit's power uh, to snuff that terrible, wicked tendency out and have zero tolerance for that kind of thing. Look at the opening statement there at your verse one. Be careful, the NIV has it, ESV has take heed, the new living has beware, I like beware, it's a stronger word. And so one writer said, whenever the Son of God starts out with watch out, uh, any serious follower should be all ears. And so uh, the word in the Greek, uh, really has a nuance of to concentrate, to focus in, to not let it out of your sight, to fasten with attention. So for example, if uh, he were to say, there's a poisonous snake in the room right now. Sorry, somebody left open the door and a rattlesnake problem we have. And there's one right now somewhere in the building. Take heed. 
I think that a lot of you would start to look around and take those words serious. Uh, I am included in that. So, uh, the, and the reason that he wants you to take heed is because these false motivations are very snake-like. They're very insidious and gradual and subtle, and all human beings are so vulnerable. That, the attitude, that attitude will ruin every good thing you're trying to do. And in fact, it just will pollute and corrupt your entire Christian life if you're not careful. And we are all vulnerable. When my kids were in high school, I was not the lead pastor of a church and I was sitting in the congregation every Sunday uh, with my wife and my three kids. And one of my high schoolers said, Dad, um, I don't want you to think I'm avoiding you during the worship time because I've moved from where I've been sitting because I have found that I, I am... Uh, wondering whether or not I'm lifting my hands or how I'm engaged in worship is uh, being seen by you and mom. And I don't want to try to be impressing you guys. I just want to be free to lift my hands or worship the Lord or sing or not sing uh, without trying to impress you. I thought that was awesome. More honest than a lot of people uh, are or can be because it starts even when we're little, and thank God uh, the Holy Spirit can say, hey, this is a problem. Why are you doing this? Would you be doing this if somebody weren't in the room watching? And that kind of thing is what we're talking about. So the problem, of course, here is acts of righteousness, namely to do them to be seen, and now no longer are they a service to God. They've become something else in their entirety. They're not serving God. They're serving your self-aggrandizement, a longing for others to think more highly of you than is merited. And so acts of righteousness comes from a general word that means any behavior that's an expression of your Christian faith or Christian devotion to God, your service to him because of him or for him, all of that. And the problem is not the deed. The deed, the deed keep doing the deed. But if you want to hear any uh, credit for it, get any credit for it, then you're going to have to do it with a sincere heart. And so uh, it's okay, listen to this, it's okay for Christians to be seen doing good works, we, but we can't do good works simply to be seen. You see that? Because Jesus said, let your light so shine in a way that others may see your good works. But here's the difference. You're wanting to bring glory to God, that they will praise God, that, that your good deed is done so that they will look to God and you will give God the praise. It's not to make you look bigger and brighter. It's to make him look bigger and brighter. And so we're all guilty of this. Proverbs 21 and verse 2 says, a person may think that their own ways are pure and right, but the Lord weighs the heart. Now, one writer put it this way to balance things out. He said, most people desire to be well regarded by others and want to be thought of as an admirable person. There's nothing wrong with that per se. As long as your good re reputation comes from good and sincere behavior. It's when our primary motive is to manipulate others into thinking more highly of us. Deeds done to bolster their image of us. So instead of a good deed, we're actually committing a fraud. It's about us now, not about God. And Jesus says there's no reward for doing that. So interestingly, it's not just what we do as Christians, it's how and why we're doing things. Why? Because man looks at the outside. God looks at the inside, to our hearts, to our motivations. Yes, indeed. And so, you know, this comes up all the time. I was at a large church in San Jose 30 years ago, 
a big, big parking lot. And there was a guy who liked to park as far away as possible, the last parking space way out yonder. The only problem was that, was that he liked to tell everybody why he was parking out there. Why are you parking way out there? Uh, you didn't even need to ask the question. He'd let you know, oh, I like to park way out there too. It's just, you know, kindness to others. I, I'm just helping people, you know, little old ladies and things like that. I don't want to take the better parking spaces for me because in my heart, I feel a kind compassion. And so he'd go on until everybody was like, oh, brother, you know what? Now, at Bethany Bible College, where I attended when I was 20 years old and everybody's young and doing dumb stuff like that, uh, we used to do this thing wherever somebody would, would suddenly slip up and tell you how many hours they read their Bible or how many days they were fasting or how, or, or how really good they are at something, you know. I'm, I'm the humblest person I know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> th those kinds of things. One of us started doing this whoosh, whoosh, and then... Somebody would say, well, what was that about? After they just said, I, you know, I memorized the hundred scriptures. Whoosh. What's that? The sound of your reward going straight out the window. <laughs> and then we started doing that all the time. And it, oh, the worst one, the worst one, but the most effective was, you know, oh, I just memorized a thousand scriptures and led three people at the mall to the Lord, and, and, and then somebody would go, oh, wow, praise you. I mean, the Lord. <laughs> oh, wow, or, or praise your name. Oh, I mean the name of the Lord. Oh, zing, ouch. Well, that's exactly what's at the bottom of it. I want what only belongs to God. I want you to think of me in terms you should be thinking of God. And if that's not all caps ugly... If that's not all caps devil, then I don't know what is. And it's in all of us. And if you just sat there thinking, not me, oh, you're the worst one. <laughs> not me, not me, because I would never do anything like that. Oh, wow. A anyway, the bottom line is not only is it diabolical, but it's plain ugly character flaw. The Bible says in Proverbs 27 and verse 2, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Don't sing your own praises or toot your own horn. Even the world thinks that's awkward. How much more when we owe all praise and glory to God and so he says, whenever you help the needy, now paraphrasing, don't toot your own horn like the hypocrites do. They love to do it wherever they go. Just to get people to think, oh, what a generous soul. Jesus says, trust me on this. They've received payment in full right then and there. So let's dive into giving. How not to give to impress others, but rather to please God. Well, <laughs> notice it's when you give. So part of being Jewish and belonging to God was that you gave. It was commanded, but they didn't need to be commanded. They knew that the, the work needed to be supported and that every synagogue you, or temple you've ever seen has been paid and built for and maintained by the members' donations for 3,400 years. Not one dollar from an outside membership made that synagogue or temple possible, not one shekel. And the same with 2,000 years of churches. Whenever you think of a church in 2,000 years, the money to do everything in that building came from boxes in the back and from the people giving. Not one other dollar came any other way. And so, of course, it's a part of a god designed part of worship, that we partner with him with our resources like I pray every Sunday. And so 
the question wasn't whether they give, but how they give. And there were many types of offerings back in the temple days and the synagogue days of worship um, that kept the ministry running. They supplied the income for the workers, uh, maintained the facility, supplied what they needed. Uh, they supported missionaries. Judaism had missionaries, believe it or not. And so uh, part of it was to assist the offerings were to assist the poor and needy because Deuteronomy 15 and verse 11 commanded that, especially in cultures with no social security or uh, welfare, it was necessary for this virtue to be ramped up. And so they had barrels uh, outside the temple doors. They had collection boxes in the synagogues, uh, very uh, not different at all from how we do things. And for the treasury, where they collected for the specific category of benevolence or mercy ministries, as they called it, as we call it today, funds designated to go to the needy, uh, they were uh, located there in front of the court of the women in the temple, 13 boxes with bronze collection funnels, and people would toss in their coins. Now, if you wanted a popular hangout, uh, and you were the kind of person who wanted some praise and adoration for yourself, this is the place you would go. Because who doesn't think uh, highly of a generous person? And so it would seem that some of the wealthier men were giving. And so for the sake or under the guise, shall we say, of expressing gratitude to some of the wealthier donors or to uh, set an example of their generosity for the onlooking worshipers, they would take the shofar and give it three little blasts before they brought out the sacks of shekels, which were... <laughs> a large sum of money broken down to the lowest possible denomination of coin to make the greatest impact and sound going into the bronze. And so they'd bring out the sax, they'd blow the trumpets, and the crowd would gather. And because sometimes they would dole out some of the money to the needy, that qualified, you had to qualify. And they'd dole it out right there. So it was a big Deal that was so a magnet for those who were thirsty for self adulation, and boy, they got it there. And so, you know, that would happen, and the angels present would try not to gag while they're watching <laughs> that. <laughs> Did it start with a good intention? I don't know. You know, kind of reminded me a little bit about the dedication plaques and uh, dedication donor uh, walls. I just saw one at Memorial Hospital, and I started thinking. I started thinking, wow, you know, pray, praise God that anybody gives anything to a hospital. That's good, right? And only God knows the heart. But look at them, how smart they are, whoever's behind the idea. We will list your name right up there, and we'll put it on the uh, wall. And here's the deal about that. They have um, a $5 million club, oh, at the top, and then the $2 million club, and then you've got the $1 million club, and then a bunch of losers who have only, <laughs> who have only given 500 grand. Oh, that list is long, right? And now they're hoping, are they not? Are they not hoping that somebody's going to see that and want to knock out one of the Emperor Club guys, you know, by giving $1 more so that his name can go up there for, well, you know what? I was so blessed to see a name, Anonymous. Now, either that's a classy unbeliever or that's a Christian who says, uh, no thanks, I'll get my uh, accolades in heaven, or it's somebody, if you're cynical like I am, who says, I don't want my name up there because I don't want any further solic solicitations <laughs> <laughs> for money. So 
Yeah, you remember the dude who gave a press conference, what was it, 20 years ago, the billionaire media mogul who said, I want to announce this press conference to let you all know that I'm giving away $1 billion to United Nations causes. You know, who can fault the actual deed? Wonderful. Lots of people are going to benefit. But, you know, to call a press conference... Uh, it's just not a Christian thing to do. No, I don't know his heart, and we'll leave that to God. So uh, Jesus is saying, my people don't need a trumpet. They don't need a plaque. They don't need oohs and ahs from other people. They don't need a press conference because they're not doing it for anybody else. They're doing it for me, and they're doing it in secret. So he says, verses 3 and 4, here's the right way to give. If possible, keep yourself from even knowing what's going on. Give in secret, and your father who sees what no one else can see will reward you. And so here's what he's saying in three and four. He's saying, play with me, people. If you, if you could, blindfold your right hand and give with your left. I don't want even your fingers to know about it. Because you know those fingers, you know, they'll get up like, praise me, praise me, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm just trying to be funny. It's not working. <laughs> and it doesn't need to always work, right? <laughs> you know, and so, yes. <laughs> it's not the fingers, it's the mouth. You know, oh, by the way, I just bought so-and-so a new car. They were in need, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I paid somebody's bill, you know, I got somebody a job, I did this or that or the other thing. I was the biggest donor for X, Y, and Z. Praise me, God. Now, sometimes you're going to get outed. And it, it's not, if you didn't send the email, <laughs> then you're good. You are not the cause of your being outed. Uh, you're gonna, God has the right to out who he wants to out. And sometimes you have to do it in public and you'll just have to try to keep your heart right. So it's not a sin to, to be recognized, especially when you'd rather not be, but it happened. We're not talking about that. We're talking about cognitively, intentionally setting things up and doing things so that the attention will come back to you. God is the generous one. Who is more generous than to give his only son for the sins of the world? Now, that's something worth pointing people to. Jesus said, you know what will keep you guys humble? Just consider this. Say this every bedtime prayer. He says, just say to yourself, I'm only an unworthy servant just doing what I should do, my duty. Think of yourself that way. That'll help you. So we move on now uh, to praying. Verses 5 through 8 and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, the closet, wherever, be private, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret, which is a great line, he sees the secret things. He'll reward you. There are, there's a variant out there that says openly. Uh, most of the manuscripts just go with will reward you. Openly is kind of a given. Uh, verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, unbelievers who don't know me. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So let's talk about Prayer and the problem uh, that uh, first century Judaism certainly faced for sure. So he says, don't be like the hypocrites. They try to impress people with their prayers, whether they're in church, let's call it church, uh, or in public. Trust me, that's as far as their reward goes. And so, so sad that something like sacred prayer can be twisted and used for other 
reasons than for what God meant it to be. So obviously he is not prohibiting public prayer. It's good and proper. I mean, Jewish and Christian traditions to be led to lead in prayer in the church, uh, to pray in groups, to pray for one another, to pray out loud, uh, to pray before even an outreach. And maybe that is on the street. And one time, 20 years ago, we're on the street. A bunch of us gathered for, let's have a quick word of prayer before we went down the Santa Cruz Garden Mall there to pass out um, Bibles and tracts. And somebody came up to us, well-intended maybe, <laughs> believers of sorts, and said, hey, you're not supposed to do that. The Bible tells us we're not supposed to stand on the street corners to be seen by men praying. And I said, bro, listen, first of all, Back in those days, it was an admirable thing to be seen praying there. In these days, it's not admirable. Nobody is, is looking over there and going, oh, wow, look at those godly young men. Uh, so, so that's not a temptation for us. In fact, it was a, like a five-second prayer, and, and we're not thinking in terms our hearts are not to be recognized. We're just about to do something we need God's help with. And so uh, that's not what he's saying, that you can't pray on the street. He's saying to them who prayed on the streets, and let me tell you what was going on. The Jews liked to pray three times a day. They kind of got that from Daniel because Daniel prayed three times a day. And so that became the thing. And so uh, at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 3 o'clock, some of you know this, that was the time that people, if they could, if they were in a place of privacy, they would just stop and pray for a few minutes, right? Well, the Pharisees arranged it so that at 9 and 12 and 3, that they were at the busiest intersections in town. They made sure that they were talking to somebody at the time and maybe at Starbucks with a whole line behind them. And they timed it exactly so that exactly 9 o'clock when he's saying, you know, can I have a latte? Whoops. He'd go into prayer and lift his hands right there. Now, they're all Jews, and they all know what he's doing, and they all know it's 9 o'clock. So they're all thinking, whoa. <laughs> Some of them are thinking, well, that's dedication. Other of them are thinking, what an annoying thing to do at Starbucks, right? But, you know, here, here they are, wherever they were, on the street corners where you could go at 9, 12, and 3, and you could see those Pharisees lifting their hands, moving their lips, and were they even praying at all? Jesus says, I don't care if you think you're praying. Those prayers are not going anywhere because it's not prayer. It's a perversion of prayer, to get other people to be impressed by you. So he's saying, man, it's a deep calling to deep. It's an alone thing. You guys should just take care that you can be alone. That's where he directed them back to their closets, the bathroom, anywhere except downtown in front of the, the fish market, right? And so, yeah, no closet or quiet bedroom or den for them because, as Matthew 23 says, everything they do is done for people to see them. Everything they do is a show. And so part of what they would do is they would make, they wore prayer boxes on their head. There's a fancy name for them, but they're prayer boxes. And so they'd make them bigger and bigger to show. I've, I pray more than anybody else. Right, And so they'd lengthen their tassels, which also had a significance for their moral obligations. I've got more obligations than anybody else. So they had a tassel lengthening contest with the guys, and, and they'd make these bigger and bigger boxes on their heads until they're walking around with a shoebox on their head. And Jesus saying, just rolling his eyes like, dude, 
You guys are missing the point here. It's not about how holy you are. It's how good God is. Amen? And so it was a big me fest. You know, they prayed about themselves with show. When they did stand and pray, when they were supposed to pray in the synagogues, it would be showy and pompous and verbose, more words than necessary. And so when Jesus... uh, when the Pharisees led in prayer, <laughs> when somebody would say, okay, it's the Pharisees' turn to lead in prayer. Oh, they buckled up because they were in for an uncomfortable, long experience. And so in verse 7, Jesus wishes to spare us all from that kind of uh, torturous thing. To ha- It is really sad and painful to be in a worship service or a prayer meeting where you are forced by somebody who's not being sensitive to feel terrible, to want to be anywhere else but there because of their bad etiquette and bad behavior. What a terrible feeling to put on somebody that here we should be enjoying the prayers of one another, but instead because it turned into more of a purpose of, you know, correcting somebody or using prayer in a small group as a soapbox to express your little petty peeves or to start on a little uh, sermonette or a teaching or an opinion about something or worse than that, gossip. These little prayers that turn into, you know, Lord, I just, we just bring before you the Jones family and their struggle with that young man who's been doing drugs. Was that really necessary? Oh, but it's just a prayer request. And the things that Christians do under the guise of godliness, those things will lack reward (laughs) for sure. So he says, to spare us all from that, when you pray, don't babble. Babble is the best translation for the word Jesus uses. He uses one of those big word, onomatopoeia. It, it means, as most of you know, a word like buzz or hiss that sounds like the thing. And so the word he uses is bata, 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 bata. All right, so he says it would be perfect to say, stop with the blah, blah, blah. When you pray, don't do blah, 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 empty phrases, vain repetitions, as the King James uh, has it. He says, this is how false religions pray. They are always chanting these mindless prayers. Uh, They maybe write even a good prayer. And then that's how they communicate with God over and over and over again. And Jesus points out that they think because they kind of self-torture by repeating it over and over and over again, then that merits something that shows their devotion to God and God will answer the longer they pray it over and over and over again. And now, quite frankly, there are pseudo-Christian organizations that do this all the time. And they recommend that you pray certain rote prayers hundreds of times a day. But, and they use the Bible. So I, I've never understood how you can justify and reconcile Jesus. Don't repeat over and over again like, Dad, imagine if your kid just woke up every day and said, Hello, Dad. You're a great dad. I love you so much, and I want to be pleasing to you today, Dad. And then the next day I woke up and said, hey, hey, what's going on? What do you, what do you want for breakfast? Hello, dad. Um, you are a great dad. Uh, <laughs> I want to do your will today, dad. You, you know, uh, there would be a sign, and this is why it's characteristic, characteristic of pagans. Pagan just means no God, unbelievers. Because t- religion to unbelievers is a thing. So you can, it's a philosophy, it's a way of life, and so you can come up with a script and repeat it mindlessly over and over and over because there's no person there. But he says, you guys have a father. You guys know what that word means. It's a dad, a dad who loves and cares and is involved and interested and hangs on your every word. Who loves you like a dad? Ideally, all things being equal. Or your mom? 
That's the kind of love God has for us. And that's the definition of prayer. So how could you turn your prayers into something formal and distant and repetitive and flowery and verbose? He says, your father knows you, loves you. Can finish your sentences, man. Let's get back to just simple, sincere, concise, from your heart to your father kind of praying. Instead of all of this um, nonsense, simple, direct, sincere, that's really what he's trying to say here. And now he's going to say, now I want to show you how to pray. And he's going to go to, to what we call the Lord's Prayer in the next few verses. I want to skip the prayer so that next Sunday we can do the whole sermon on the prayer because it's rich. It needs its own sermon, I believe. So let's just lift it up because here, and I just want you to note when he says, this is not what you should pray. This is how you should pray. Oh, big difference. So he gives a structure. Let your prayers kind of emulate this kind of flow. And we'll talk about that next week. Right now it lifts out perfectly and we go to the example of fasting to finish up with our third point. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. They love to disfigure their faces and show men that they're fasting. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil on your head and wash your face so it won't be obvious to everybody that you're fasting and only your father who sees what's unseen, he's going to reward you because he's the one who sees what's going on in secret. All right, so the third and final Christian discipline. Of all the three disciplines, this uh, modern Christians uh, see this as the least significant uh, and it's the least practiced probably because there's no command for us to be fasting, though it is biblical and wonderful and powerful, and then Jesus doesn't tell uh, anybody to stop fasting. And so, in fact, he suggests that there will become a time when the church is uh, going through struggles, that fasting would be in order, and also some other reasons, too, I might mention. So fasting in Judaism was a big deal. So not so much to us, so we're wondering why it's in there, but to them, it's a big deal. Because it was commanded, at least on one or two occasions. And so uh, fasting, a short period of time. To the Jew, it was from sundown to sundown. So sundown all the way through the night into the morning till the next sundown. And at the sundown of the following day, they would eat and break the fast. They would drink water, but it was always about not eating food to mostly humble themselves, consecrate uh, themselves to God for a purpose, uh, or they're saying something is more important than feeding my body right now and prepping and enjoying what I could be enjoying. Instead, it's not about feeding my body, but attending to my soul. So Christians fast um, for big decisions. In Acts chapter 13, you see a church fasting before they send two guys out for the very first time to do missionary work. And then you see Christians fasting for big problems. In Matthew 17, Jesus said, I suggest fasting when there's this kind of spiritual oppression. That's an extra tool. Uh, personal spiritual discipline, focus, and concentration. Paul the Apostle seems to have enjoyed fasting on his own there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, the Jews were more involved, as I suggested. It was a regular thing. And uh, they fasted in periods of mourning and loss of death in the family uh, to draw close to God. And fasting for the Jews was confession and repentance time. So when they felt they were out of sorts with God, they'd shut down the food for a couple days and say, I need to get right with God. And so that would be their way of um, denying themselves and saying, God, I've messed up here. I need, I need to try to, to get right with you and focus better on you. A holy day, day of atonement, was required, a day of repentance and fasting, Yom Kippur, uh, and then uh, desperation. In times of war, they would fast, 
And in Nineveh, uh, the king of Nineveh heard Jonah's uh, uh, cry that they were all going to be wiped out in 40 days. So the king of Nineveh, a pagan, said, oh, let's fast and pray. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so times of desperation. So it had already become an Old Testament problem of hypocrisy. And God rebukes them in several places about their fake fasting. And so in Isaiah 58, uh, the voice is coming from the congregation saying, hey, we've been fasting here. Why aren't you doing anything? Why haven't you taken notice? And God responds through the prophet Isaiah and says, fasting? Are you kidding me? While you're fasting, everybody is doing as they please. And you're fist fighting with one another. And you're ripping people off. And you're going about self-absorbed living and abusing one another. He says, that's not the kind of fast I had in mind. So no, there's no reward for that kind of thing. Well, the Pharisees took hypocrisy with fasting to a whole nother level. They fasted twice a week. They didn't have to, but twice a week, Thursdays and Tuesdays, all right? And so uh, notice in verse 16 that Jesus doesn't have a problem with the fasting. He has a problem with the show. Right, so he says somber faces, and so they purposely acted with fatigue, uh, and, and they would fake being run down and tired and kind of get a sad look on their face, and they practice in the mirror, you know? Uh, they channel their inner Eeyore, all right? And then just be like, uh, you know, kind of talk on purpose. It's kind of like when you'd call into work and you want to say that you won't be coming in because you're feel, not feeling well, you, you know. It's, it's kind of like that. And so, uh, oh, I, and so they're waiting. They just drag themselves along. Oh, they look terrible. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting for that great question. Hey. You're looking a little tired, a little run down. Are you okay? And bing! Oh, there it is. Oh, I'm just fasting before the Lord your God. I'm interceding for you and your family, brother. God bless you. Ding, ding, ding. Jesus says, there it is. There it is. Don't miss it. Your reward. There it is. When they went, oh, wow, that's cool. There it is. It stops right there. Done. That's all you're getting. That's all you're getting. Well, they'd go it even further. To disfigure doesn't work in English because we picture like plastic surgery happening. You know, how do you disfigure your face? You, you know, uh, well, the Greek also has a meaning for to neglect or to let something deteriorate like a garden. Perfect. We got it. Daily hygiene. Men didn't shave, they didn't wash their hair, they didn't comb it as normal. Uh, they would wear lotions, uh, yes, and gel, hair products. They had them, and they used them. And so instead of getting ready in the morning, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, they would get unready. So they would wake up with the purpose. So if they didn't have bedhead enough, they would put more bedhead into it, right? If they didn't look that bad, they take, and they said this in the commentaries, they take ash and put it on themselves. Yikes. Just for the question, man, you look bad today. What's going on? And then they'd whisper, oh, I'm fasting, but don't tell. Then a hurricane came in. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. You want to know? Oh, man, I wouldn't be surprised if the hurricane didn't suck him out of the building. Oh, my word. How awful. Ding, ding, ding. Pain and full day. Whatever you ever do anything in your Christian life, there are hundreds of things we do as Christians because we're Christians. Whatever we do or don't do it for the purpose of hoping, oh, maybe, you know, done. That's it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it while it lasts. Because on the day of reward, which is very interesting that Jesus wants to say, there's a reward night. People, hello. Remember I told you? Don't necessarily have to do it for the reward. Do it everything for Jesus. 
But he says, I'm paying attention to you. Don't you want something under the tree when you get there, as it were? Don't you want something? Well, it's not going to come when it's all a show. When it's not sincere, this is the way it goes. I want to close with a really bad example of how this could go wrong. And I saw this happen with my own eyes. I was at Bible college. The chaplain came in for chapel. 500 of us were packed in a room. And he said, I want to read you this letter, an anonymous letter of sorts that I got about one of our students. You could hear a pin drop. So he read this letter about from somebody in the community who ran into one of the Bible college students and wanted to tell the, the, the president of the Bible college about this amazing young man. And we're, okay, so we're listening. Okay, so what happened is this amazing young man bumped into him and had the spirit of discernment that he was demon oppressed and approached him and laid hands on him and cast this demon out of him and he threw up and he, and he repented of his sins and he saw the light and the guy gave him a Bible and has been discipling him and he just wants to let the Bible college know Wow, two thumbs up, you're producing the real deal up there. And all I can tell you is I don't know his name, but this is the kind of car he drove. A student from the Bible college made it up and signed it with his car so that there would be a way for the president to find him. That's sick at a Bible college for the glory of having the admin say, whoa, look at that guy. Now in that case, there's more going on than just a forfeit of reward. There will be chastisement for that. And of course he got found out. It was wonderful. So wonderful. It still makes me a little ill because I knew him. Yikes. Really bad. But I still pray once in a while for that soul. Do you want any of that in you? <laughs> to some degree or another, whenever we do a little bit of that, it's connected. Let's look at that with disgust and hatred and turn the Holy Spirit loose to annihilate those kinds of motivations that seek self-aggrandizement over the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father God, I just thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us. Lord, all of us have a problem with that. We, we just go too far. We want people to like us. We want people to think well of us. And somewhere along the line, it gets blurred. And uh, we start to act in insincere, hypocritical ways. Forgive us all, but show us. God, point these things out so we can nip them in the bud by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.